0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This is the Gospel of the Lord. We all heard Pastor Knuckles declare that a short time ago, following the reading from the 7th chapter of St. Mark. And we all responded by saying, Praise to you, O Christ. This is the Gospel of the Lord, huh? Is it really? Maybe it's just me, or maybe I'm having a bad week, but I've got to tell you, I don't see a whole lot of Gospel in those 13 verses. Do you? I'm open to suggestions. As many of you know, the proper distinction of law and gospel is a very fundamental though extremely difficult practical component of Christian theology. The professors spend an awful lot of time drilling it into our heads at the seminary. They try to make us understand just as Pastor Knuckles and I as your teachers in the faith try to make you understand that almost all heresies and other errors in Christian doctrine arise out of an improper understanding or an erroneous application of law and gospel. We must always try to keep straight that whatever it is God does on behalf of His creation, giving life, sustaining life, redeeming us in Christ, giving us faith, sanctifying us through the Holy Spirit, and giving us salvation in heaven, all that is gospel. On the other hand, whatever we are required by the Scriptures to do and what we continually and miserably fail to do and the consequences for that, that's law. Confusing the two and applying them at the wrong time and to the wrong individuals can result in comfortable sinners becoming even more comfortable in their sin and terrified sinners becoming even more terrified this will leave both of those unfortunate sorts of souls under the judgment of God and condemned to hell instead of being properly moved to repentance and faith. You can see then how critically important is the proper distinction of law and gospel. No one's perfect at it, of course. Martin Luther himself wrote that it was the most difficult skill for any pastor to develop. He went so far as to express a willingness to confer confer a doctorate in theology to anyone who could do it consistently and well. Conscientious pastors, especially good Lutheran pastors, do attempt to clearly proclaim law and gospel to their flocks, and also to those they come across in their daily interactions when they have such an opportunity. Other religious leaders, sometimes those who have been erroneously trained or who are inattentive or who even intentionally proclaim a faith which departs from that which God has shown us through the prophets and the apostles and the evangelists, they often proclaim a a different sort of message. One which promises terrific results will be yours here on earth and later in heaven if only you will do this and that in such and such a way. In this, they give many people false hope and false confidence that they've managed to mark off all of the necessary boxes on their checklist. And in this, they also give despair and terror even to those others who realize that they haven't been able to meet all of the stringent requirements that they are told God expects of them. That, dear friends, is not the gospel. Yes, it may sound easier and it may sound more attractive to our ears to have some sort of specific tasks to do or rules to follow to ensure our salvation, especially especially if following that plan also promises health and wealth and harmony and happiness here on earth. We all find those things attractive, certainly. It sounds like good news. It sounds like a brighter future and a hopeful end result but it's not the Gospel. It's simply another tantalizing temptation among the many that the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh dangle before us. They all hope that we'll bite down hard and fast before we notice that sharp barbed hook underneath that will tear open our souls and leave us hanging out of the life-giving water of our baptism, gasping in fear and in pain as our breath slowly leaves us. So then, what do we see there in the seventh chapter of St. Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus? Those 13 verses we heard earlier. Mark begins by setting the scene and describing who is present and what is observed. Pharisees and teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem, the center of religious and political life in the Jewish nation. And they'd come to the area around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was teaching and was healing many. It was a journey of no more than a hundred miles, for us no more than a quick jaunt up to Waco or perhaps down to San Antonio. But in those days, on hot and dusty and rough roads, probably walking on foot or possibly riding on an animal, it was an arduous and taxing journey. Yet so impressive and so amazing were the stories that had reached the Capitol about this Jesus that these leaders had no choice but to go see for themselves and investigate. This unauthorized rabbi, rabbi's teachings could be turning Jewish religious life completely over on its collective ears as people heard his words and reconsidered what it truly meant to follow God. And what do they see upon their arrival? That some of his followers are not following the ceremonial rules set forth for the washing of hands before one eats. Mind you, no one in those days had any inkling about germs or the spread of disease by microorganisms. The washing of hands was primarily for appearances and for piety, not for hygiene and for health. It was a very good idea, we now know but it was by no means a certainty in those days. Instead of approaching the individual disciples who were observed eating with the unclean hands, these Jewish leaders follow the normal cultural uh, aspects of the day, and they approach the leader of the group, Jesus. They bring Him the issue. They confront Jesus about this violation, challenging Him with a question. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Basically, they were calling into question Jesus' knowledge of the Jewish rules and regulations. Or his ability and his inclination to teach these rules to his followers. And perhaps even his authority to enforce such observances upon them. The implication was clear. You're not a real rabbi, Jesus. If you were, that sort of thing wouldn't be going on in your sight. You'd make those people shape up, or you'd drive them out of your group for not following the rules. Seeing their hearts and knowing what it was they were driving at, Jesus comes back with an answer from Holy Scripture. His pull-no-punches response not only accuses them of hypocrisy, but he also tells them that they've got their priorities screwed up too. They've elevated man-made rules almost to the point of obsession, put their dependence and their faith upon these rules, and set aside what God truly desires of his obedient children. Had Jesus stopped right there, they would have been offended enough, I'm sure. He'd call them hypocrites, implied that they didn't know or follow the word of God and told that they weren't conforming themselves to God's way. Sort of like we do ourselves each and every week when we admit in the words of our various confessional liturgies that we are unworthy, we have sinned and thought word and deed, and we have not loved our God with our whole heart. For deep down, we are all Pharisees through and through. And as our many protests to the contrary arise even this very moment in our minds and catch in our vocal cords, it just proves the point and convicts us all the more. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does He? He's relentless. He presses forward with His attack, giving them a prime example of their inconsistency, their hypocrisy, and their nonconformance with God's law. With dripping sarcasm, He tells them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. He points out specifically what the Word of God says in regard to one's mother and father, and he contrasts that to their tradition of korban. You see, under this tradition, one could make a religious vow of dedicating a portion of his earnings to God, and that would get around having to provide proper support to his or her mother or father. And once made, such a vow was vehemently and vigorously enforced by the Pharisees, even though it ran clearly and directly against the Word of God. These Pharisees and these teachers of the law were looking out for their own interests and for giving the proper appearances of piety and religiosity rather than for having a right heart with God. In making his accusations and pressing in the hard, Jesus was giving an excellent example of the proper distinction of law and of gospel. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that came to Him that day had hardened hearts. They were comfortable as sinners, thinking that by following their complex system of rules and regulations, they were showing their faith and they were righteous in the eyes of both God and man. Yet here they were, in a backwater town in a remote section of Palestine. And he who is both God and man was staring them down and finding them lacking. In their comfort, in their pious self-righteousness and self-confidence, they weren't ready to hear the Gospel. They needed to hear the law in all of its harshness, all of its severity, all of its judgment, and in its under the microscope, under the hot, bright light's intensity. They needed to be hammered upon until their brittle shell of false security was shattered and it was leaving a soft and weak and vulnerable soul exposed to the mercy of God. You see, in speaking law to these men, Jesus was actually showing them extreme love. He was not telling them that everything was fine. He wasn't comforting them with the falsehood that it's their intentions and not their actions that count. He wasn't assuring them with a lie that their efforts would be seen as admirable by God. He wasn't telling them that it's okay to sin and to violate the clear word of Scripture as long as you can convince yourself and others that it has a good reason for it. And he wasn't telling them that it's okay to close your eyes and your ears to your own sin or to the sin of others and simply accept it as long as it doesn't appear to hurt anyone else. You see, Jesus was giving them gospel in the larger sense by first applying the law to them to begin the preparation of the soil to receive the good seed of his kingdom. Now, we can't know the hearts of those individual Pharisees and teachers of the law who came to Jesus that day any more than we can peer into the hearts and souls and see the spiritual condition of anyone in our own day apart from their outward behavior and their outward words. Yet it's safe to say that some of them had hearts of rock that needed to be cleared or pulverized into dirt. Others had souls which were like a heavily walked path that had been pressed down and tamped so hard that seeds might not be able to penetrate its rigid surface. And a few others might have had souls that were already plowed into softened soil, eager and willing to receive Jesus' words of life and the kingdom of God, as so many others already had. So don't despair. Don't feel frustrated when you come across a difficult portion of Scripture such as this, one that doesn't seem to have any good news or words of encouragement or hope within it. Remember that we remaining sinners as well as having been made saints, we still need to be regularly reminded of that and given a dose of the bitter law once again before receiving the sweet, sweet Gospel. So then, where is the Gospel in our Gospel lesson this day? Where teachers and Pharisees come to Jesus and complain about the behavior of others and are chastised for their own blindness and hypocrisy? gospel is right there where the gospel has always been centered. In the one who on that day spoke to evil hypocrites by the Sea of Galilee and speaks yet today to evil hypocrites in pews in Austin. The gospel is there in the Word made flesh, in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. It's there in the one who was baptized in the waters that flowed southward from that Galilean lake, joining himself to you for all time in his humanity and in your own baptism. It's there in the one who would make his own arduous journey, not from Jerusalem up to Galilee to see a radical preacher and rebuke him for his disciples' faults, but rather a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem to do a most radical work on a bloody cross, the work that would rebuke sin and death and remove their curse forever in spite of his disciples' many and most grievous faults. Yes, the Gospel is there. The Gospel is there because Jesus is there. And where Jesus goes, there goes the Word. Where the Word goes, the Holy Spirit works repentance and faith. And where faith is, there is forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. That's the Gospel, dear friends. And that's what is delivered to you in the speaking and in the hearing and in the singing each and every time we gather here where Jesus has promised to be for us. So bring your unwashed hands and bring your filthy hearts. Bring your hypocrisy and your disobedience. Let Jesus' words of law drive all the pride from you. Break up the stones and plow the soil of your hearts too so that your soul might receive both the words and the benefits of His sweet gospel love. Be cleansed again and again in the remembrance of your own baptismal washing and eat of that food that makes you pure, holy, and immortal, the body and blood of the Word made flesh. The gospel is found wherever Jesus is, and Jesus is right here for you. In the name of the Father